if I went to other producers and I didn't ask for that, I didn't ask for credit, that they would actually give me far more deal flow because I wasn't coming and asking the same thing that all the other producers were asking. So I would go to producers and I would say, listen, I don't really care about having my name on this right now. I just want to get better at raising money. So what happened was all of these producers gave me multiple shows that they were raising money on. So rather than going to people with an individual show, which is what most producers were doing, I was actually going to investors and potential investors with a portfolio of shows. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out of the box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind the scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Michael Roderick is the CEO of Small Pond Enterprises, which helps thoughtful givers become thought leaders by making their brands referable, their messaging memorable, and their ideas unforgettable. He is the host of the podcast, Access to Anyone, which shows how you can get to know anyone you want in business and in life using time-tested relationship building principles. Michael's unique methodology comes from his own experience of going from being a high school English teacher to a Broadway producer in under two years. Michael, welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Corey. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so you know, you have an interesting history, which mentioned the bio of high school teacher, Broadway producer, and then, you know, doing what you do now. But I want to start out by taking you back even before that. And when you were growing up as a little kid, 8, 10, 12 years old, what did you want to be? Because was it any of those things at that time? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, as a matter of fact, one of the things that was always on my list was to be a teacher. My mother was actually a uh, kindergarten teacher, and I used to go and help her on certain days with her students. So I'd always had a teacher on the list of things. So it's uh, carried with me pretty much throughout my entire life. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, and we'll talk a little bit how you went from there to what you're doing now. But uh, my other question looking back is, what was your first deal of any type, whether it was with you were a kid or older? What was your first deal? Oh, wow. Uh, that's such an interesting question. If I were to go, I would say it probably happened in high school. Because in high school, our English department had a lot of funding issues because our school is very sports-based. So people were sort of always spending money on all the sports teams and, and all sure. those types of things. So I actually went to principal and had a conversation about using our school's auditorium to do a battle of the bands because I had had a band in high school as a fundraiser for the school's English department. So I actually sort of went through the whole process of like getting the approval from the principal, getting the approval from all of the different permits and things that you have to do in order to have a battle of the bands experience, a nighttime experience out of school. And yeah, it involved me having lots of conversations with teachers, getting a lot of buy-in, 
getting people being willing to do it. And then also having all the students buy tickets, right? And actually spend money. So uh, yeah, I'd say that's probably the first one. <laughs> Love it. Love it. So now talk to us how you went from high school teacher to Broadway producer in two years. And obviously as a, and, and even, you know, I think most people know what a Broadway producer is, but not everybody, uh, you know, does. So tell us how you got there and what a producer does. And, you know, a little uh, preview listeners, producers need to do a lot of deals, especially raising yes. money. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So what most people uh, kind of don't see is the fact that a producer's job for the most part is to raise money for a show. It's your job to find investors. It's your job to find people who will help finance the production. So uh, in my case, I was looking at the industry and one of the things that I learned was that most of the up and coming producers were very, very interested in the topic of credit. So the idea was if they would raise a certain amount of money, they would get a credit for being involved with that particular show. So they would get their name either above the title or below the title next to other producers. Uh, their name would kind of be in the spotlight. And when I noticed that, I realized that if I went to other producers and I didn't ask for that, I didn't ask for credit, that they would actually give me far more deal flow because I wasn't coming and asking the same thing that all the other producers were asking. So I would go to producers and I would say, listen, I don't really care about having my name on this right now. I just want to get better at raising money. So what happened was all of these producers gave me multiple shows that they were raising money on. So rather than going to people with an individual show, which is what most producers were doing, I was actually going to investors and potential investors with a portfolio of shows. So I was able to say, oh, if that's not of interest, I've got four or five other things that might be interesting to you. And what that did was it just, uh, it made it easier to find a deal that kind of matched the personality of, of the other person on the other side of the table. And it led to my name just being mentioned by all of these other producers because I had raised money on all these different, on all these different shows kind of behind the scenes. So eventually it got to the point where I had built so much credibility that one of the producers on Scottsboro Boys, which was my first like official Broadway credit, came to me and said, hey, you know, I've seen that you're able to raise this money. I see that you can do this. Would you be interested in having credit? And they actually offered it to me as opposed to me going and asking for it. There's so much in that because, you know, listeners, we often hear about on the organic growth side, on the sales side, on, you know, on the organic business growth side, uh, you know, the concept of unique selling proposition and, and differentiating yourself from the marketplace. Well, you know, this is a great example of how, as a deal maker, you know, Michael differentiated himself, right? Because in the Broadway space, there's a lot of people who, you know, who want to be a producer, right? They like the idea of having credit, you know, on their name <laughs> on something. And, you know, so it's just a great example. I mean, it's in anything you do, even in, you know, in being known as a deal maker in a particular industry, differentiating yourself makes a big difference. No yeah. Question. Yeah. And a lot of the time, every industry has vulnerability. Every industry has things that people are not doing for any number for, for any number of reasons. And it's worth it to look at what those vulnerabilities are. It's worth it to see like if there's a normal, like if everybody's trying to jam themselves through the same door, where are the windows? Like what is the other avenue? What is the other way of making something work? And the more that you kind of think in 
that model and the more that you try to think about what are some different ways of trying this or some different ways of presenting this information, the more likely people are going to talk about you because our brains are wired to recognize contrast. So our brains are always looking at how is one thing different from another? And if you create that contrast for somebody, they're likely going to talk about you far more than somebody who's kind of doing the same thing that everybody else is doing. Love that. Love that. What inspired you to do that in the first place, being a high school teacher? Yeah. So I had always been involved in theater from a very, very young age. I'd uh, always done a lot of acting and writing. And when I moved to the city, I was teaching and I was running our drama club at the school. I was, you know, producing sort of smaller shows with students and everything. And I just got very, very interested in the New York theater scene. And I started to get very, very interested in just sort of like how it all worked. And while I was getting my master's uh, at NYU in educational theater, I was meeting all of these students from Tisch who they were actors and they wanted to do shows, but they really had no desire to do the producing side of it. They had no interest in the logistical piece of it. And I've always, ever since I was very young, had this sort of weird combination of creative and business brain. So I would always kind of look at what they were doing and be like, oh, wow, this is fascinating. This is the business opportunity. This is how we could sell this show or sort of make this show work. And I started to just kind of become known in that small circle in the off-off Broadway community. And we ended up in a roadblock where a lot of the time, basically what people were doing was they were raising their money by doing fundraisers, right? So the idea was that you would go to a bar and you would invite a bunch of actors to the bar and everybody would throw in like five bucks and you'd hopefully make enough to like cover the deposit on the theater or whatever. And what I realized was that people would spend more money if they were coming to an event where they could meet more people and they could connect with uh, other theater professionals. So what I did was I started hosting events where I would rent out the back room of a restaurant and I would basically have them all set up tables with individual theater companies and I would promote to writers, actors, and directors come and meet 50 theater companies in one night for say 20 bucks or something like that. And we'd raise significantly more money. But because I was doing that, people at higher and higher levels of the theater world started to kind of get wind of me because I was bringing all of these people together. So by the time I had done four or five of these events, I was already starting to meet off-Broadway producers. And from the off-Broadway producers, I started to meet Broadway producers and get to know Broadway producers. And that's really how that those relationships were built. Wow. So that was uh, back in the, in ancient times when you can get a bunch of people together in the same room in, in a restaurant. I think I remember those days. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. There was no social distancing then. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, you gotta you gotta laugh, uh, folks. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, let's take a break from the show for a minute, so I can invite you to join our DealQuest DealMakers community and our upcoming Zoom event, conversation, connection, and cocktails. We're doing this every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern time, and you can sign up at CoreyCupfer.com/cccevent. That's CoreyCupfer.com/ CCC event. You'll have a chance to engage with other business owners, leaders, and executives to hear more from them about their greatest challenges and most effective strategies for growth in these challenging times. Now back to the show. 
So now you evolve after that and tell us about Small Pond Enterprises, what you do now and how you went from Broadway producing to doing that. Yeah. So basically, once people kind of saw that I was able to get in all of these doors, the next natural question that I was always getting was, how did I do it? Right. So everybody wanted to know, like, how was I getting people to invest in things? How was I you know, talking to people at these like higher levels, like everybody wanted to know this, this aspect of how was I doing it? Let me actually interrupt you there for a second, because I realized there's something that I want to hit on because, because you, you yeah. said it again, and, and you said, you know, how did you raise that money? Yeah. I want to actually have you answer that question in another context, because I want to say, people don't know how Broadway shows work. I think mm-hmm. this is an accurate question. Michael, tell me if it's not. How did yeah. you raise all that money when most people were not going to get a return on it or even get it back, right? Like most shows lose yes. money, right? Like really, yes, how did you yes. raise most, that money? Yeah. yeah, yeah, most shows do lose money. And it comes down to the fact that it's about what matters to the other person. So for a lot of people, Broadway is not about investing to make money. They don't think about it in that context. There's a different reward for them to invest in a Broadway show. So for some people, the motivation is they want to be a fly on the wall in the process. They grew up as theater kids, and then they got a job that for them felt very boring, right? Where they just feel like things are kind of monotonous. And they're like, oh my God, I get to go to an opening night party. Oh my God, I get to go to a rehearsal if I just write this $25,000, check. They don't care about the actual money. And the investment, some, you know, as people get further along, yes, there are some who do care, but most are basically doing it for the experience. There is something about the experience that is attractive to them. So it's either they want to be a fly on the wall of the process and they want to learn more about the process, or it's that they are looking for something that is kind of like a calling card for them in other industries. If you're the person who says you invested in a Broadway show in uh, you know, a finance community or a hedge fund community, you seem very, very interesting, right? Because you're doing something completely outside of the circle that all of these other people are doing. So I would always basically just like figure out why does this person want to be part of this world? Like what is it that actually matters to them? And then see if the investment side of things you know, made sense to them. And very, very often, I basically went to people who either hadn't invested before or had maybe invested once or twice. And I always kind of came from this uh, indirect ask style where what I would do is I would say, this is what I think about the project and this is why I think it has potential, but I'm curious, what do you think? And I would let them get involved in talking to me about whether or not they felt that the project had potential or that they thought the project was exciting. And then I'd feel out that situation and figure out, is it something that really motivates them that they're excited by? And if so, I would present to them the opportunity. And that was the other thing. I didn't ask them for money. I just presented them with an opportunity. I was like, here's the thing. Like, it's totally up to you. And the thing in Broadway that they often say is that you can't make a living, but you can make a killing. And it's true. There's tons of instances in which people lose all of their money, but it's high risk, high reward. So and, and, if and you're then, the gambler then, type. Right. Yeah. Then, then there's <laughs> Hamilton and Cats and, uh, you know, and yep. Les Mis and the Phantom or whatever. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it really comes down to this aspect of understanding the other person and understanding the motivation 
And then also never presenting something as I'm pushing it on you. The, the metaphor that I often like to use is if you were at a party and the people who are serving the cocktails and the treats kind of walk up to you and jam a, you know, a cocktail weenie in your face, right? right. You're going to say no, right? You're going to push it away. But the person who just walks by you, lets the smell of the food kind of waft and keeps walking is the one you grab and you say, hey, come back here. Right, let, me, right. you know, let me take that treat, right? And, and any type of investing scenario is just like that. You want to you wanna tell somebody, here's what this thing is. Here's the value of it. Here's why, I, here's why I think it's worth it. But here's the deal. It is your decision. And if you don't want it, that is totally fine. I don't really care. You know, I'm happy to talk to somebody else if this isn't the opportunity for you. Yeah, so someone and else you let will, them will, make the decision. Someone else will eat the cocktail weenie if you if you don't want it. You know, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So so now let's take that into uh, how that you know uh, brought you to Small Pond Enterprises and what you do there. Yeah, sure. No worries. So yeah, so basically people were starting to ask me like, what was my process, right? How was I getting in all of these doors? Why was I getting all of these introductions? Why was my name on sort of everybody's lips, right? And I was getting my master's in educational theater. And one of the things that we had learned about was simulations. And uh, in a simulation, you basically have people act out a real world scenario, and you learn a ton as a result of being part of that real world scenario. So I started hosting workshops where I would simulate networking experiences. So I'd have people act out one-on-one meetings, job interviews, and cocktail parties. And once I sort of noticed the patterns in terms of how those people were interacting, I started to develop frameworks to teach people relationship building. Mm. And because these frameworks were so effective and people were getting really great results and they were so easy to remember, I was getting introduced to all these different industries. I was in the business world here. I was in the entertainment world there, all this different stuff. So I I landed on this aspect of, oh, the reason why I end up in all of these rooms is that the people on the other side of the door are very, very interested in what I have to say once I get in the room. Mm -hmm. And when I realized that, I realized most of us never, never, think about how we're going to package ourselves so that other people are talking about us. We love to sort of look at our content and our material and we love to serve and sort of help others. But it's so rare that we take the time to think about how could I take my methodology, my idea and make it so easy for you to remember that you share it with your friend, not because I'm some brilliant person and this is the best thing ever, but because it makes you look good. Because it suddenly it's like it's impressive for you to talk about that. And I realized from a relationship building standpoint, that was sort of the gold standard in introductions, right? If you became the type of person that people basically mentioned that they knew you as a way to show off <laughs> to their network, then you're always kind of coming into a conversation with that like halo effect, yes. right? People are just expecting a really, really solid conversation. And you're always going to have a, a much better experience if there's that warm up, right? So if you take the time and you create your own frameworks and your own methodologies, and people then are sharing your ideas and sharing your methodologies, you walk into the room and people have already heard about you. They're, they've already done aspect of due diligence. So it's way easier 
to get into those conversations and to be able to get deals going. Love that. Love that. So what are the types of clients that you work with? And then we'll, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about how it further ties into deals. Yeah. So I work mainly with people who are in the thought leadership space. Uh, they, they make a living with their ideas. So they have their own intellectual property. And in many cases, what they likely have done is they have deprioritized packaging it. So these are the people they've never sat down and said, what does my process actually look like? They've never said, if I were to write a book or if I were to do a TED talk, what are my top three points? What is my framework that I would teach people? What is my process that I could help folks understand? I look at their content from that angle and start to think about, okay, if we were to take this content and treat it the same way that you treat the title of a Broadway show, how does that translate? Because most of the time we're too close to our material. Like most of the time we know our stuff so well that we don't see what it looks like from the outside. So where our faces are pressed against, uh, up against that TV screen. So we need somebody behind us to tell us what's on TV and most importantly, tell us if we need to change the channel. Uh, and the joke I often make is that I'm kind of like this combination between Don Draper from Mad Men and Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> you know, uh, where it's like package it up, um, but also look at the psychology and figure out sort of why would people buy, uh, you know, what's behind, uh, what's behind the messaging and make sure the two things line up. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because this is, con- I think, you know, I hear two things in what you're saying. And one is a concept that I've talked about in the past where I think a lot of people who are really good at what they do are, uh, I love this phrase, unconscious competence. And mm-hmm. you know, what that means is that they, they do have a framework. They do have a way they do something, but they don't have it distinguished because it's just what they do, right? And it works for them. And I yep. remember I was in a, some cross around uh, leadership and processes, and I don't even know which one it was. So I, I unfortunately can't credit it. But they were talking about how, you know, really most of us who are really good at something have a system for how we do it. We might not have that system distinguished, but mm-hmm. the truth is that we, there's a way we do it. I started thinking about the way I developed at the time in my law firm and the way I did business development, really much more the way like from an introduction from somebody to a prospect to at the point at which that prospect hired me, right, what I did. And, you know, I was very good at that. I've always been very, I mean, I've built it up, obviously got better over time, but I was very good at that. And I was thinking about, well, how do I train my other attorneys to be able to do that, right? And if you Uh hold it like it's a skill or, you know, that, you know, you just have and someone else doesn't have, well, then, you know, you can't train it. But what I really realized was that, I did the same thing every time, pretty much. I mean, not not to say, you know, but I, 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 I always, you know, reference the referral source. And then, you know, I asked questions about them. And I was really, truly, genuinely interested in their business. If they asked me about price, I'd always push that question off to the end. Not that I was, a, you know, first of all, I needed to know, understand them, you know, better to be able to answer that question, what their scope of needs were. Like, I, I, I won't go through the whole thing now because, but the point is, like, I yeah. realized I had, like, an undistinguished 12-step process that I just did unconsciously um, that once I was able to distinguish it, I can now train people on. So, so, you know, what I hear you saying is that, you know, there's that step to figure out, you know, what are your top three things? What is the thing? And then, of course, there's the way to package it to the marketplace to make it attractive, right? Yes. Exactly. You know, uh, you bring up this great point, which is for so many people who are talented, this, what they do just feels like kind of this natural, you know, this natural thing. And it's very, very easy to put yourself in this mindset of, oh, well, you know, nobody else could do it. It's just this knack that I have. It's just this talent that I have. 
And you may have a degree of talent, like you may have, you know, an aspect of talent in the work that you do, but there are patterns in the work that you do. And the patterns are always the precursor to frameworks. So you have frameworks in many, many cases, it's just, they haven't been unearthed yet. Right. Yeah, no, I definitely found that. And then great people who do what you do, like like you, you know, do is then, you know, take that secret sauce or, you know, for, you know, uh, unique framework or whatever, and, and tie that into the way that a market will be able to hear that message and be interested in it. Right. Exactly. Love it. Love it. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about, I mean, you know, I can see some ways that I'll give a shout out on one example on episode two. So this is going to be episode 70 something. All the way back on episode two of DealQuest, or at that time it was called Fueling Deals, we had Ramon Ray on, and you can go mm-hmm. back and listen to his episode. And, you know, and Ramon is a guy, you know, who's built, you know, he looks at himself sort of as a mini influencer, right? And he's built this personal yes. brand. And what he's been able to do is he leverages that into affiliate and sponsorship deals. He does events, you know, online, offline, where he gets, you know, companies like Microsoft, the big companies, to sponsor. He gets deals out of that because he's been able to do what Michael works with people to do. Um, so what other ways does that lead to you know, opportunities and, and deals for folks, Michael? Yeah, so a lot of the time, if you have a referable brand, then what's happened is now you have the opportunity to do something that most people don't get a chance to do, which is cross over into other industries. Mm. So most of the time, we only stay in one industry because we're in what I like to refer to as the echo chamber of the enlightened right? Where everybody's kind of using the same phrasing, the same language. So we all kind of get it, but you go outside of that industry. And a lot of time people don't understand, right? They don't understand what you do. They don't understand what you're about. And you have kind of new kid syndrome when you go into that industry. If you have taken the time to craft this referable brand, to have your own methodology or your own process, and you've really taken the time to think about how you can make it very, very accessible to multiple audiences, then you actually have to test it in another market, right? So you could be working in one industry right now. And the thing that most people forget about is that every industry has uh, what I like to refer to as an understanding ceiling and an income ceiling. So the understanding ceiling is the batch of basically jargon that that industry has, right? So if you are in an industry and everybody kind of knows the same knows the same jargon, the ceiling is pretty low. You don't really have to ever worry about will people get it. But you go outside of an industry without that jargon and and the ceiling is pretty high. Like you've got to learn a whole new batch, whole new batch of jargon. On the income side, right? Each industry has a cap usually on what people consider a lot of money. And in one industry, it may be next to nothing And in another industry, it's ridiculously high. So if you go into a market that has a higher income ceiling, you could be doing the exact same thing you're doing now, like the exact same thing you're doing now and get paid 10 times more for it in the other industry. And that's an amazing opportunity that most of us don't ever really think about. And obviously, if you built that brand, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, companies, organizations, uh, you know, you name it, uh, you know, other people who, uh, you know, maybe do similar things to what you do in that industry, you know, they're much more likely to uh, strategic alliances or joint ventures or just hire you, you know, uh, because you're a recognizable brand. So, you know, it's uh, no, no question, no question. Well, this is great. So listen, if people want to find out more about you, uh, Michael, what's the best place for them to go? 
Yeah, so uh, my website is just um, smallpondenterprises.com. And the podcast that I host is called access to anyone podcast.com. They can go there and they can check that out. There's tons of content there. And I'm also very, very available on socials on, you know, LinkedIn, the book of faces, you know, just, you can always feel free to reach out to me and happy to be helpful in any ways I can. That's great. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, folks, uh, that'll all be in the show notes, you know, definitely Michael's good at what he does. So definitely, you know, check him out. Uh, so Michael, my final question on the podcast is about the thing that's actually my highest ideal in life, which is freedom. And uh, for me, freedom means, uh, you know, is, is everything from freedom from all people from oppression to the reason I'm an entrepreneur, right? The reason I, yeah. that I've been unemployable for the last 30 years, right? You know, cause, yeah. you know um, so what does freedom mean to you and how does it apply to your business and life? Yeah, freedom to me is about feeling that you can do anything. You know, and I think that as an entrepreneur, that's sort of the highest feeling, the understanding that especially like right now with, you know, entire industries, you know, having their challenges, industries shutting down all sorts of different types of things. Being an entrepreneur gives you that freedom to know that like, even if something completely shifts and changes, you've already built this skill set to be able to land on your feet. Because you're always thinking, you're always trying to, you know, come up with new ways of thinking about things and, and looking at things. And you're already kind of prepared for the roller coaster, right? The second you decide that you want to be an entrepreneur, you know, if, if somebody hasn't already told you, uh, you experience it pretty quickly that you're going to have, you know, a bunch of super low lows, right? And freedom is that aspect of knowing like, you're trained in many cases by what your life has been like as an entrepreneur to manage pretty much anything that comes your way. Yeah. Love that. That's such a great message for, you know, if, if anybody's listening to this podcast, you know, well past when it launches, uh, it is during the time of COVID-19. So if you yes, like yes. a, a year <laughs> from now, this podcast is going to be released when, yeah, when we still have uh, shelter in place and, you know, and we're, a lot of businesses still closed. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's been interesting, um, Michael, you know, I've seen, I did a little, um, you know, a social media post on this where I feel like, you know, it's not universally true and obviously everybody has their own challenges, but I do feel like entrepreneurs have this uh, generally a more positive forward-looking attitude on average, and this is not scientific, it's anecdotal for me, than a lot yeah. of folks. And I think it's largely because they ultimately do have, you know, more control and the freedom to make, you know, decisions that impact their lives and families and somebody that sort of relied upon someone else to give them a job or not, you know, or furlough them. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Michael, thank you so much for being on the DealQuest podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Corey. This was an absolute blast. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. You can be a friend of the show by leaving a review on the Good Pods app, podchaser.com or any major podcast player. Every review helps the show reach more listeners. If you're ready to take your deal making to the next level by becoming a master negotiator, head over to Amazon or Audible and grab a copy of my best-selling book, Authentic Negotiating. Then connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know your thoughts. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.